Chief Gary Ludwig has managed two metropolitan EMS systems, Memphis and St. Louis, and has pioneered many concepts which are now standard practice in fire and EMS systems nationwide. He currently serves as the Fire Chief of Champaign, Illinois, and is President and Chairman of the Board of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. Today, he will discuss the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on frontline workers, in particular, on firefighters. Let's listen in. All right, well, thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate that. And uh, let me just say I'm honored to join you all today. And um, I, uh, I just make a commentary before I begin. Uh, I applaud your organization. Um, I've dealt with several members of Congress who are, are, are members of the party of the problem solvers. And so um, I think this is outstanding. Uh, we should all come together to try to find solutions that works in the best interest of the American people. So I, I give you all a thumbs up for this uh, and uh, I truly applaud this. So um, it's it's just disconcerting for me to all see all the rankings sometimes that goes on and uh, we should be coming together as a people to find solutions. And so I, again, I applaud those offer, uh, efforts. So so uh, with that said, uh, thank you again for the introduction, Bill. I'm honored, um, as you said, to be in this profession for 42 years now. And I started my career in St. Louis. Uh, I was 18 years old, just out of high school and I got hired by St. Louis. and Spent 25 years there working in St. Louis and then 10 years as a deputy fire chief in Memphis. And then uh, now I'm honored to serve as the fire chief here in Champaign, Illinois. And uh, one of my biggest honors of my career is being currently the president of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. And as a result of that, um, it puts me in a unique position at this period of time in history where our challenges are many that we face within the fire service right now. Um, with the COVID-19. And so I'll just kind of take a few minutes to kind of highlight some of those issues. So the fire service uh, is the largest provider of EMS in the United States. I don't know if you all knew that or not, but we are the largest provider. So when you see all the great work that's being done on TV by the, the doctors and nurses and what they're doing in the hospitals and the ERs and emergency rooms, um, those patients got there somehow and how they got there was through the fire service mostly again we are the largest provider of ems in the united states so we are the ones that are treating caring and transporting these covid 19 patients to the hospital and so as a result of it uh, our personnel are exposed to these patients sometimes we're walking into environments that we don't even know that it, there are people there that are infected and all we can do is is try to learn what their symptoms are and try to go off of that and we had unfortunately one firefighter in New Jersey died, not even on a medical call, but he went on a gas leak call and was checking three different apartments in New Jersey. And uh, all three of those apartments had infected people in them. He contracted coronavirus and subsequently died from that. We've uh, unfortunately lost from the time this has started until now, we've actually documented 52 deaths of firefighters and EMS personnel who have died as a result of correcting or contacting or um, uh, uh, getting coronavirus while on the job. So 52 is, is uh, not a number that I like to hear. And unfortunately, we have many people that are still sick and some that are on ventilators. And we certainly pray to God that they uh, come out of it and re fully recover. So we, as I like to say, are the warriors on the tip of the spear in this battle. And as a result of that, uh, again, we are the ones out front. And I can tell you early on, we have major, major, major challenges with PPE. Uh, the acronym for that is personal, uh, the, the, that's an acronym for personal uh, protective equipment. 
And so the things that will protect us from this coronavirus, such as N95 masks, gowns, shields, booties, uh, we're in short supply. And, uh, and the, the hospitals are challenged. You probably saw plenty of that stuff on TV. And so we had battles going on. We were trying to battle with FEMA uh, that we needed these supplies. There was such a thing that we have in the United States called the Strategic National Stockpile, that if we ever had a cataclysmic type of event, that um, this the FEMA government or the FEMA, the federal government would step in and they have plenty of supplies and drugs in this national stockpile that they can distribute. And as a result of that, uh, the, the strategic national stockpile was very short and, uh, and the demand was greater than what, what the supply was. Many departments exhausted their supplies initially and then turned to their county emergency management agency and how the process works is you turn your county emergency management agency and then they put the request up to the state for equipment and then it goes to again they have these FEMA regions and that's how you get your supplies well the supplies were over um, the request for supplies was overwhelming the system and I talked to fire chiefs as Bill said I talked to fire chiefs and chief officers all over the country and uh, as a result of that um, many told me they were buying raincoats to try to protect their people uh, Phoenix had bought, actually bought ponchos, uh, were trying to protect their firefighters because they didn't have enough equipment. And so uh, I had several conversations with the FEMA administrator, Pete Gaynor. He assured us that they're doing everything they could. And I could understand his dilemma. They were doing everything they could. Um, but at the same time, some of the states were not prioritizing us as firefighters. We are uh, what FEMA calls our resourcing type as a tier one, a priority one. But when it was getting to the state level, some of the states were not determining that we were tier one or priority one. And so I had fire chiefs in Florida, as an example, tell me that the state health officials told them that the firefighters are not the priority. The doctors and the nurses are the priority. That's where the equipment's going to go. And uh, and again, I, I'm not shortchanging the nurses and the doctors, but we got to find a solution to this. Uh, so we had multiple conversations I did. Um, and our staff, the IFC staff with the National Governors Association, trying to resolve these issues. Well, as the curve um, got better in many states and many locations, and as the supply chain got better coming out of countries, uh, in the, mostly in the Southeast uh, Asia area, and, as, company, and as, as the Defense Production Act ramped in, and we got com companies here in the United States that were starting to manufacture PPE, we actually started tipping the other way and we were finally getting supplies to our first responders and getting supplies and nurses and doctors and all those sort of lines. So we really don't have those many challenges right now. Uh, although there are a few places I hear from chiefs like Pine Bluff, Arkansas and other places like that are still having some issues. So uh, the, one of the biggest issues we had early on coming out was all the fake supplies that were coming out of China. We have, we have a coronavirus task force within the International Association of Fire Chiefs, and we have a doctor on that task force, Dr. Christina Baxter, who is actually examining the material coming out of China. And it, is, is, it was phenomenal for me to hear the numbers, but over 90% of what was coming out, over that's 90% of what was coming out of China that she was examining was fake. It was fake N95 masks and other things like that. So. Um, that's another challenge. Actually, the state of Missouri issued fake material uh, to the first responders through their distribution center through the supply chain. So we've, we've actually, I think we've come over that hill. We're, we're in better shape now as the curve, not to be repetitive, but as the curve has flattened and as the supply chain issues have gotten better. Our biggest challenge right now in the fire service right now 
is the economic fallout from this. And so we have surveyed many of our members. We have over 13,000 fire chiefs in the United States that are part of our association. We represent 1.2 million firefighters in the United States. And so we had them input data into an economic survey and then we, we extrapolated that data and we, and we brought it to its natural conclusion. And we found out that uh, we're looking at about a $16.9 billion shortfall, economic shortfall to fire departments in the United States that they lost dollars either through taxes. Volunteer fire departments have been unable to fundraise during this time period. And we're also looking at an estimated, and this is another um, uh, cataclysmic or terrible number, 30,000 firefighters that may get laid off during the next 12 months as a result of what, what we would determine. And again, we think we have about a plus or minus 4% error rate on that calculation. So um, that's our challenge right now is the state and local governments, mostly municipalities that have lost tax dollars. Uh, you look at my municipality here, right here in Champaign, Illinois, the University of Illinois is here with 55,000 students. We count most of my revenue that comes into my city uh, for my municipal government is through sales tax dollars. Well, when you take 55,000 students and you send them home, the end result is that you lose all those tax dollars. And so we're looking at an economic shortfall here, our finance department's working on all that. Uh, but that not only impacts the fire department, impacts the police department, the dog catcher, the health department, anything else that is a, a form of municipal government. And you can multiply that by many municipalities around the country. I listened to the mayor of Ithaca, New York, the other day talk online that he's got two major universities in his town. And again, the economic fallout of the sales tax dollars. And in my case, as you, again, you sent 55,000 students home. We're all buying Domino's pizzas and other things like that. Um, all those tax dollars are lost. And that's what we use, obviously, to help fund uh, the, these warriors at the tip of the spear to keep our communities safe, not only for the local emergency, but maybe might, might, might be a regional emergency or hopefully never, ever another national emergency such as this. So uh, we have been working with Congress. I've had multiple conversations with Senate and House Appropriations Committees. I've spoken with the staff from Senator Schumer's office. We've spoken with the White House several times already. Uh, I had conversations with um, uh, Representative uh, Speaker Pelosi's office, other senators, other House of Representative members, um, as they started preparing for this HEROES Act, as you saw, which was passed by the House last week. And so there's uh, a $500 million in there for one of our federal programs for firefighters called AFG. And that stands for Assistance to Firefighter Grants. That's where fire departments get direct grants from the federal government to fund different types of uh, needs within their departments. That program has been in effect actually since about the year 2001. And there's another program that we have called SAFER. That's another federal program. And SAFER stands for Staffing Adequate Fire and Emergency Response. That program has been around since 2008 when we had our last economic issue. Again, that was a program that the federal government implemented again, to keep uh, firefighters in communities and help the federal government keep municipalities with firefighters in the front line. And so volunteer fire departments also use safer funds money to recruit and retain volunteer firefighters. So there's $500 million in there for, uh, for safer. There's $500 million in there for AFG. Now, again, as you know, that's going to the Senate. Um, there's been some early indications by the Senate leader uh, Senator McConnell, that they're not going to 
uh, undertake this bill. We'll see what happens. You know how 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 Congress works. So uh, they may come out with their own version of the bill and they'll go in the conference committee and figure it all out. I don't know. But there are some relief in there. There is some relief in that Heroes Act for the fire service. Um, there's other things that are in there for the fire service, including uh, what we call repeal of the T-ban uh, auction. There's a spectrum of radios that are mostly for municipal, I'm sorry, for large metropolitan areas like New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, that the FCC is required to auction off that T-ban in February of 2021. Well, combined, it will cost about $6 billion for those municipalities to move all that radios that are in those fire trucks, on those portable radios, move them all over to a new radio spectrum. Uh, and so there's a legislation in front of Congress right, right now called Repeal the T-Ban, which we're hoping uh, that passes. That way those metropolitan governments would save about $6 billion uh, collectively. So there is a lot more, Bill, uh, that I can talk about. I've been, I don't know what my time is right now, but that's kind of the overview of where we're at. It's an economic and operational impact to us of what we're seeing. Um, we believe about a thousand or more firefighters have also been affected. I talked about the 52 deaths that have occurred right now, but we think there's been over um, a thousand have been, uh, been infected by our numbers, what we'll be able to accumulate, whether impact dashboards that we have running. And we know that over 12,000 firefighters have been quarantined as a result of being exposed. So when you add all that up, that when you have firefighters who are out sick, when you have firefighters that are quarantined for 14 days, you know, we can't shut those fire stations down. We can't shut those fire trucks down. We have to bring firefighters back in on overtime. And as a result of that, our budgets have been decimated. We're trying to buy PPE uh, all in the open market when you can't get it through FEMA or through your state agency. And then the other thing is you're getting impacted because you're paying overtime trying to bring firefighters in to keep the staffing levels up in your fire stations and in your municipalities. So so it's been an operational and an economic impact. And unfortunately, we're just starting to see the economic impact of what may come. So with that, Bill, um, I will um, just kind of stop there and allow anybody to ask any questions they may have of me. Well, uh, Chief Lugrig, first of all, let me thank you for that very blunt, knowledgeable, clear presentation of how the world looks from the perspective of your members. And if, if I can be personal for a minute, I think I now know why you were elected to the position of leadership that you now have. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative uh, to ask the first question. Uh, and let me just remind everybody uh, that the, the chat function is available to signal your desire to ask questions, and I'll recognize you more or less in the order that you let me know. Uh, you identified a number of important public policy issues in your discussion. You talked about the national stockpile. You talked about relationships with FEMA and the governors. Uh, you talked about what happens when you have to go out on the open market uh, to buy PPE that you expected would be in the national stockpile. And of course, you talked about the economic and budgetary consequences of what is now happening. So let me just, let me just put a very direct question to you. What is going to happen to your folks on the front line if Congress does not pass a package of assistance to state and states and localities that includes that includes firefighters. What's going to happen? 
So um, I'm going to talk several perspectives of that. Um, obviously, if the municipalities have to uh, lay off to what we think is up to about 30,000 firefighters, you're going to compromise public safety in the communities. If volunteer fire departments don't get money to help them get through this crisis that they have been unable to fundraise, you may have your local volunteer fire department shut down. And Bill, what's interesting about that is a lot of people think, oh, there's there's uh, money in there for AFG, there's money for SAFER, there's $375 billion for municipal governments. Uh, what's unique is volunteer fire departments are not under a municipal government. There are a lot of times there are 5013C that it provides some type of um, you know protection within a community. So they're not under any form of local government. So they wouldn't see any of that type of money. So that's why it's so imperative that AFG and SAFER be funded because those are direct payments to fire departments. It's not go, it doesn't go through the state office. It doesn't go through some middleman. It's a direct transparent process of paying money to uh, and helping economically departments that have been devastated in this regard. So, so the answer to your question, I'll get back to that, is that uh, you're going to see an operational impact of that and that you will have delayed response times. Uh, I also will go so far as to say you will also compromise firefighter safety because we work as a team. We're not a, we're not some uh, unique individual that does something alone. We work as a team. We respond as a team. And sometimes you have less firefighters on the scene or as a, a group of firefighters, a team of three or four working together. If you're down to two, then you're compromising safety. For instance, when I send a, a uh, firefighters to the roof of a house on an aerial ladder, I can't send one firefighter by themselves up to the roof. I have to send two firefighters up there because they work as a team, you know, in tandem with each other. And there has to be a third firefighter down actually operating the controls at the base of the aerial ladder. So you need three firefighters at a minimum to operate that aerial ladder in order to go to a roof to make a rescue or go to a window to make a rescue or go to a roof as we do. We ventilate a building to get the heat and the gases out of it. So long answer to your question, but there will be definitely, without question, an operational impact that will compromise safety in communities as a result of that. Thanks, Chief. And I now have a long list of questions for you. So okay. I'm going to recognize them in order, uh, starting with Joe Colonetta. Joe, over to you. Thanks, Bill. Uh, thanks, Chief. This is very informative. I live in uh, hurricane territory and have been through many natural disasters uh, and I've noticed that uh, FEMA has incredible powers, particularly in assisting with uh, volunteer fire departments and EMT staffs. So why can't FEMA use their powers? Why do we have to go through a, an actual legislative act with CARES and AFG? So FEMA has powers, but those powers come when they get funded. Um, so FEMA doesn't have the necessary funds sitting in their accounts right now uh, for AFG and SAFER. Um, uh, so the only way that FEMA can help us, and that's how we get those funding is through FEMA. There's a grant directorate within FEMA. And so as a result of that, uh, in order for them to pass that money on the fire departments, that uh, obviously that has to be funded in some mechanism. You know, and Joe, if I may take just a second to talk about what you just talked about, hurricane issues. Here, here's the other part that we haven't spoke about is we're starting to head into wildland fire season. I don't know if you're in Florida or not, but I looked the other day. Uh, I have a friend. Are you in Florida, Joe, by chance? No, I'm in the Gulf Coast. Gulf Coast. Okay. Um, well, anyway, Florida, uh, I have a friend who's the fire chief outside Naples. Uh, talked to him several times last week. 
he had an 8,500 acre wildland fire going down there in, in uh, just, just outside Naples in the, near the Everglades. Uh, I looked on the national website or the fire, the federal website. And uh, there are uh, currently 13 active uh, wildland fires going on in the United States. And none of them are in California right now, which is actually where we hear of them at. So you imagine all the challenges that we'll have again, if these wild, this we're just entering into the wildland season and I might add hurricane season. So here we are, you know, going back to Bill's question about uh, what is the impact? Well, the impact is operationally, but when we ramp up and do mutual aid for hurricane disasters or wildland fires, we don't have a group of people sitting around waiting for that to happen. We actually pull firefighters from our existing resources. For instance, FEMA has what they call these USAR teams, which are urban search and rescue teams. There are 28 around the country. Only 16 are fully functional right now as a result of the fact that we're down firefighters. I don't know what will happen when we actually cut more firefighters. So they will dispatch those FEMA teams, those USAR teams, into those regions to do urban search and rescue to supplement the local municipalities that need help. And so as a result of that, uh, so as we enter into hurricane season, we enter into uh, wildland fire season, we're going to be challenged as a fire service even more. So, um, but going back to your question, I'll, I'll just go back and repeat that we need um, FEMA, the, those programs that FEMA has need to be funded through, through legislation. Uh, thanks, Chief. I now have uh, four more people in the queue. Let me just name them so you know where you stand. Uh, uh, Douglas Scrivener, Maxine Clark, uh, Richard Livermore, and Ron Bergamini. So, uh, Douglas Scrivener, you're next. Thank you, Bill, and thank you, Chief. Uh, you and your uh, members are doing an incredible job, so thank you <clears throat> for that. Um, there are folks who talk about uh, the concept of hazardous duty pay uh, for first responders, for the frontline medical uh, personnel, whether that's now or at, you know when the pandemic is over. Um, maybe with regard to, maybe not with the, who's going to pay for it, where's the money for it. The question for you is, do you personally or does your group have a position on the notion that uh, hazardous duty pay would be appropriate for, uh, for first responders? That's a good question. Um, and I will tell you on a personal level and in talking to my peers, um, that's nice that they're offering that, but this is what we signed up for. Um, I, uh, you know, what we do is hazardous every day. Uh, and that's what we train for and what we prepare for and what we do. And uh, that's a nice gesture uh, that was, that entered you know, into the HEROES Act for the premium pay. But I personally, this is what I signed up for. Um, and I don't mean to be repetitive with that, but, uh, and I talked to my other peers, I talked to my firefighters. Um, it's nice, um, but uh, we're not, we weren't asking for that. When I spoke, with six, six different House appropriation committees and Senate appropriation committees. When I spoke with the appropriators, when I spoke with the White House, I spoke to undersecretaries at Homeland Security. I can go through the list of all of them. I never once asked for premium pay for our people out here. All I asked for was let's protect our people out here. Let's get the money and the PPE. Let's get the supply chain fixed. Um, and let's make sure we keep our firefighters safe in our communities. And let's keep our firefighters, enough firefighters in our communities so that we can keep our communities safe. So I hope that answers your question. I, I don't personally need it. I signed up for this. And you talk to most of my peers, um, they say the same thing. Thank you. I thought that might be your answer. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Uh, 
Next is uh, Maxine Clark. Maxine. Hi, Gary. My name is Maxine Clark, and I'm from St. Louis. So uh, glad to see you. And I, I remember reading about you. So um, okay. but I, now I know where you are. So it's great to know that you're not Where are you at far. in St. Louis? I live in Clayton. Clayton. Okay. Um, John Paul Jones is the uh, fire chief. I know John very well. And they're terrific. They're He's terrific. a terrific individual. And I grew up in South St. Louis. So but uh, it's uh, nice to talk to somebody from St. Louis. Yeah, and you're you're right about the EMT part because my husband had a health emergency a couple of years ago, and they were here in a second, the fire department, with everything that you needed, and they were just amazing. We had a one of our homes burned down in uh, about 15 or 20 years ago, and we, I couldn't have made it without the, the fire. The firemen were not only there to put out the fire; they were there for emotional support. So it was terrific. Uh, my question is about the the national stockpile and. I, I don't know that we ever really thought about it too much until it became in the news, but what is it, you know, wh you, how would you access it if you needed it? What would you do? What is it supposed to be? And how easy or hard is it for people to access? And if it's national, why couldn't it have been resourced from the, the different local communities that really needed it? Yeah, it, it is. A, is a, when I say a national strategic stockpile, there's not one big cash somewhere, you know, in the central United States, it's uh, it is actually just distributed in multiple locations around the United States. Um, and so um, they have a variety of different types of medical supplies in there. And one of the biggest things they had actually was uh, the anti or the anti drug, if you would call that for, for nerve agent attacks for sarin and stuff like that. So uh, there's a variety of different things in there. If we had all of a sudden had a some type of terrorist attack where they attacked the city with nerve gas that we would have enough agents that we could actually counteract that. Um, there were other things in there like PPE and stuff like that. I don't think we ever envisioned nor thought about uh, this pandemic coming. Although uh, I, I must tell you, I, I bought the book from John Barry a couple of years ago on the great influenza and, uh, and I read it and I never, you know, I read it as I like to read. And so I went back, I had to reread it again and like, oh my gosh. Uh, so, um, you know, so we never thought about it and then all of a sudden it hit us and it hit us suddenly, as we know, it just, it just hit us with just such impact. Uh, although one, some would argue that we saw it coming. So I will, I will, I will offer you this, uh, and this is my own personal opinion, Maxine, this is not um, the, the position of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. But what disturbs me, and I have said it all along, because we have experienced in the EMS field, the fire to fire EMS field, drug shortages for 10 years. The critical drugs that were used maybe on your husband, thankfully they had them, but we've had times already when I was in Memphis that we had to actually um, manufacture, so to speak, our own drugs from different ingredients at a pharmacy so we could have the critical drugs we needed because there was a drug shortage. And we're relying on other countries to manufacture our products, critical supplies such as drugs, and now we find ourselves in a critical trying to rely on other countries manufacturing our PPE. And I'll tell you on a personal level, I'm a strong advocate of bringing manufacturing back to our American shores for these critical things that, that we would need for a war such as this. We would never make our tanks, our bullets, and our missiles overseas and rely on some other country to, to supply us during the middle of a war. So why are we manufacturing drugs, PPE and other things that we need at critical times like this on some foreign shore. And the, the that is, I know that people will address that and say, well, it's economically feasible and more cheap to manufacture over there. Well, we got to find a solution to that. And that's obviously what this group is about. 
um, you are the problem solvers, so to speak. And so, but that's my personal opinion. But Maxine, the, the national strategic stockpile is such that it was not equipped and ready for this because one, we probably didn't see it coming. And two, we didn't think about it coming and we didn't prepare for it coming. And so we were trying to play catch up the whole time. Uh, thanks. Uh, Richard Livermore, you're next. I think, I think Maxine was trying to follow up with something. Oh, I'm sorry. One, one more part of that. So we're going into hurricane season. And uh, we obviously know we've used a lot of those supplies somewhere around the country in different places. Now that we all know, now that all of us know what a national stockpile, we know it's not in one hill or one bunker in the United States. How do we advocate for it to be um, alive and well, if you will? And, and you know, maybe that's something you could, you could send us the information on. I think it's something that we most of us just took for granted or didn't even know existed. And uh, I'm worried about, I'm from originally from Florida. I know the hurricane season is, you know, coming upon us soon and they're going to need it or they need it in, in central Michigan where that there's all kinds of things that go on that are um, not, not intentional. Nobody knows they're coming. They just happen. You're correct. You know, and you asked me how we, I forgot you asked me how we access that. So I'll give you the Missouri as an example. So so in St. Louis County, you have an emergency management agency. And so the Clayton Fire Department may say, I need these supplies. So they would go through the county emergency management agency, who would push that request up to the state emergency management agency, which then would have the, whatever supplies are in the strategic stockpile in Missouri that are being supplied by FEMA. And that's how it's a pathway such as that that would access. That's how Clayton, Clayton couldn't go directly to FEMA and say, give me this. They would have to go through their local county emergency management agency, which would push the request up to the state EMS emergency management agency. I hope that answers your question on that. Uh, and, and answer your question about hurricane season, yes. Um, that is, uh, you know, obviously a concern coming up. Um, and uh, hopefully we don't see any cat fives like we've seen in the past, like Katrina and others like that, uh, Andrew going back to the 90s. Um, but at the same time, um, there are also, we talk about USAR teams, there are actually also national federal DMAT teams. Those are disaster medical assistance teams. I don't know if anybody is aware of those also, but those are operated through the Department of Health and Human Services through ASPR. And uh, they have multiple teams around the country and I know they have one in the St. Louis area where they they would mobilize them if they have to down to a region. They can set up field hospitals. They can set up other types of events like that. I know that AMR, which is a large national private ambulance company, has the federal FEMA contract. They found out with Katrina, all of a sudden you had to move all these hospital bed patients down out of New Orleans and nursing homes and hospitals. How do we do that? We didn't have the resources to do that. They now have a system they can mobilize like they did to New York City recently, where they mobilized 250 ambulances to New York City during the middle of the COVID crisis. So I hope that answers your question. Okay, Richard Livermore, it's now your turn. Uh, hi, Chief. I'm, I'm from California, the land of the uh, forest fire. Um, I'm, I'm a retired Superior Court judge, but I also have a ranch, and, and we were surrounded by uh, three 100-year fires in the last six years. Wow. Uh, which, uh, as you can say, puts a tremendous strain on resources. I'd like to address the international part of, the, of your title, International Association of Fire Chiefs. Uh, from that perspective, are you seeing uh, any best practices uh, here and abroad that can help you operationally and where an outfit like uh, No Labels or the Congressional Caucus 
can push for operational changes that can help you from a best practices standpoint, not only here, but of course, internationally. Excellent question. Um, and uh, I, uh, I have been uh, speaking mostly from issues here in the United States, and I will tell you that most of our members are here in the United States. Uh, we also have members in Canada. Uh, we have a, a division in Canada, the International Association of Fire Chiefs, and we have numerous members around the world uh, who are fire chiefs. Uh, I met with the Cho Tokyo Fire Chief uh, last year. I was up in Canada meeting with the Canadian Fire Chiefs. I was actually scheduled to go to Germany here in June and meet with the, our German counterparts who are members of our association here in June. Of course, that's been canceled. So, so to answer your question, Richard, um, I, I've had, I have actually been interchanging with my peers and my counterparts around the world during this. Uh, it was actually last Monday, not this past Monday, the Monday before, um, where I was on my second webinar with chiefs from, multiple chiefs from Germany, Africa, uh, Israel, the Middle East, uh, Spain, France, Italy, uh, Ireland, uh, the list kind of goes on. And we were sharing experiences and best practices of what was going on. And, and it's, it was unique to hear what, what we're doing. They're also doing the same thing. We, we actually have found ourselves in a position that we're actually in the United States determining some best practices or we're replicating what they're doing. So um, it's, <clears throat> it's been unique to see us uh, that even though we're many miles apart and sometimes oceans apart, that we're sharing the same experiences. And, and some of the things that we're actually doing that we picked up from, I think, the Israelis is that they were electrostatically spraying their fire stations and their ambulances to kill any of the virus that was in there. So after each call, um, the other thing that we learned from, I think it was France, uh, or was it, I think it was France, that they started, instead of every ambulance going on these calls, they were dedicating specific ambulances that would go on COVID-19 patient calls so that we didn't infect all of the ambulances. Let's say that, like when I was in Memphis, I had 38 ambulances that I had on the streets every day. So instead of sending, infecting the potentiality of all 38 and trying to clean all 38 after each call and compromising operations, let's just say these four or five ambulances, these are the, for the COVID calls where they have flu-like symptoms. We're not sure if they have COVID or not, but they have all the symptoms that would indicate that. Let's just save those ambulances and then we'll dedicate all our resources to cleaning those specific ambulances. So, so it's, been a, it's been a trade back and forth of exchange of information. Uh, we've learned some best practices from them, but I must add that we, um, we in the United States have blazed a path for others to follow also. Okay, final question that I have is from uh, Ron, Ron Bergamini. Thank Drop you. it bat. Thank you, and uh, let me join in thanking you, Chief, for your service and leadership. Coincidentally, just yesterday, I was on the phone with a local health clinic staffed by volunteers, and they're looking for about 1,095 masks. Wow. You, when you just said that 90% of them are fake, uh, what advice do you have for someone to be able to identify that? So, um, so I would recommend, I forget which version is it. We're doing the IAFC, the International Association of Fire Chiefs, is doing a webinar uh, every Monday. And we have our experts on there that are providing this information. And I think Christina was on, I have to go back and look, but I'm going to give you all an email address that you can email this person. That's our staff person that's coordinating all this. And she actually gave presentations on those webinars and there's slides on there. 
that shows you how to identify these fake masks and these other types of things like that. And um, and so the uh, the e the email address for that is COVID nineteen TF at iafc.org. That's COVID nineteen TF at iafc.org. You can email. That's Dave Becker. He's one of our staff people. He's coordinating these webinars. And you can ask him what are the two webinars that Christina Baxter was on because we've done ten so far, Ron. So I I I'd hate to get have you go search through all ten of them. But she was on, I can't remember, it was seven or eight or five and six, whatever it was. And she did these presentations. And I sat there with my mouth open, quite frankly, when she told me 90%. And she has and on, on the slides. And so these are on YouTube, these webinars. And so if you find out the number by emailing Dave, you can go look those up on YouTube, those webinars on YouTube. And you, she has those on there. You can see exactly there's a C and an O uh, and, and how close they are together versus how far apart they are. And in uh, some of the FDA numbers that are on that, she's got it all down. And uh, it is an excellent webinar to identify what is fake. And, and I, and I might take the liberty just to talk about, we had some problems early on because we were getting reports that equipment that's coming in across the ocean, coming back from China or Malaysia, other places like that, were being seized by the federal government. So Phoenix, as an example, uh, Miami-Dade, Florida, they ordered supplies directly because they couldn't get out of the strategic national stockpile. So they ordered directly from manufacturers over in China or Malaysia or Vietnam. And, uh, and they, there was news articles that the federal government seized these and, uh, and put them into the national stockpile, which really frustrated them because then they were going, they weren't necessarily going to the fire department. So I asked Pete Gaynor direct, Pete Gaynor directly, uh, who's the FEMA administrator, Number one, do you prioritize firefighters? And he said, yes, we do. I said, well, why are you seizing our supplies that we're ordering directly from manufacturers overseas? And he denied that it's happening. There was another man by the name of Richard Farmington, also from the FEMA supply chain. He denied that's happening on a phone call I had with him. But what, what Pete Gaynor said may be happening is the Department of Justice has task forces out there that are identifying what are fake supplies coming out of China or Malaysia or Vietnam or one of the Cambodia, whatever, in the Southeast there, you know, Asia, and they're seizing them as they come in. Customs is seizing them. The border agents are seizing them as they're coming in so they don't get into the supply chain. So that may, apparently the thousand that they ordered might've slipped through, it looks like. Um, and that, you know, you can't obviously grab all of them, but um, I would email Dave Becker that email yeah. I gave you Ask what are the webinars that Christina Baxter is on. Uh, Search that out on YouTube. And uh, she has two on there that uh, are excellent. Uh, she is quite the expert on identifying what are fake. Much appreciated. Thank you. My, my honor. Okay. Before I get to Richard Davis uh, for the last question in the queue, I just want to throw a personal anecdote in into the pot. Uh, I live in Maryland. My governor is Larry Hogan. He's, he, he's married to a South Korean woman who was instrumental in, uh, in engineering a shipment of PPE from Seoul uh, to uh, Baltimore. And Governor Hogan was so worried about federal seizure that he called out the National Guard <laughs> to, you know, to protect the contents of the, of the flight. And they are now in an undisclosed location, still being <laughs> guarded. <laughs> That's uh, I, I had not heard that story, but uh, 
that's uh, that's uh, funny and also ironic to hear. So yeah, um, yep, yep. <laughs> okay, Richard Davis. I'm calling from New York, and uh, we've seen through a number of crises of real heroism and firefighters. So we really do appreciate the enormous work that is done, <clears throat> not just in fighting regular fires, but in dealing with, with crises. My question relates to going back through this crisis and currently, what is the experience in terms of the availability of testing for firefighters? You know, have they had enough testing what they needed? Do they have it now? Um, what what is your experience and what are you hearing? So um, I think we are um, we're just a subset of what we saw nationally. We didn't have the testing again, which is an issue. Um, and that was some of the legislation that we asked for when I spoke with uh, the House, when I spoke with appropriators from the Senate, appropriators from the House, the White House. Uh, I wrote letters to the president um, asking that our firefighters be prioritized when it comes to the testing because we're at the front lines there um, and we are, we got to know if our people are sick or not. Um, I think we're getting better. In fact, it was ironic you asked me that question because uh, yesterday the, um, we set up a testing site here in Champaign. The, the National Guard is here um, and they can, they actually can test. It's a drive-through process. We have several now set up in Champaign. They're setting up these all up around the country um, where you can drive, you can test 750 people a day coming through. There's a drive-through and the National Guard members have been trained here um, to actually take those swab, the nose. It's not the one where they actually put it up and put it behind your eyeball, so to speak, this terrible <laughs> one. So um, it's actually just a swab that goes right inside your nose. They, they take a sample from both sides of your nostril and, um, and they put it in a test tube and they send it off. And then uh, the only thing they ask for is a phone number they can call and give you the results. So I think we're seeing the testing that has ramped up substantially in the United States. Um, Richard, it was a challenge early on. There's no doubt about that. And even then, I ordered a bunch of antibody or uh, anti, um, the antibody testing kits. And, you know, I got a bunch of them in. And the first thing I heard was, well, those really aren't accurate. Um, they give you, there's a 20 to 80% of a, a possibility of a false positive on them. Um, it's, and it doesn't truly give you, we don't know. It's a snapshot in time. Even if you have the antibodies, we don't know how long these antibodies last. Do they last a year? Do they last six months in your body? Do they last 10 years? They don't know. This is a novel disease. We don't know. Um, even if you were to do an antibody test, you know, what, how long do I keep the antibodies in my body? So um, I think we're learning more. And uh, the answer to your question, we are getting better with the testing, but it was a challenge early on as it was um, for every, everyone to get the testing. The testing was mostly restricted, as you might know, to those who actually had the vibe, the the verifiable symptoms that were very present on people. Uh, Liz, I know Glenn uh, is going to, Glenn Lowenstein is going to close us out, but before that, can you just give us the update for the schedule for the rest of the week? Thank you, Bill, and thank you, Chief Ludwig, for giving us your insights. Tomorrow, we will be joined by Governor John Kasich, and on Friday, we will be joined with by um, Secretary Janet Napolitano, the former Secretary of Homeland Security. Thanks, Liz. Glenn, over to you. Thank you, Bill, as always. Um, and thank you very much, Chief Ludwig. Um, you know, we really appreciate you being here, not just because of what you do, but because it allows us to see the full cycle 
of the work that No Labels and Problem Solvers does. And in fact, I think it's really an inspiration for us to um, do our work. And, and so if you'll bear with me, um, in my, in my um, volunteer time, I'm helping this group fundraise. And so, um, but you can see some of our housekeeping here. Um, and so I just wanted to let everybody know that it's an incredibly exciting time for no labels and problem solvers. In the next four weeks, we have 14 calls nationwide in 14 cities with Congressman Reed and Gottheimer and Senators Manchin and Cassidy. Tomorrow, there's a call in New York. And next week, there's four calls in Austin, Boston, Alabama, and Jacksonville slash Orlando. And so to any of you who are in those cities or maybe want to learn on those calls how to prepare for your own cities, please contact the all-star team of Emma, Bridget, Megan, Piper, or Liz. And they're doing incredible work nationwide to set up all these cities. Firefighters are the largest provider of emergency medical services in the country. Throughout this pandemic, they have been treating and transporting COVID-19 patients with extreme levels of exposure. Over 50 firefighters have died as a result of having contracted COVID-19 on the job. Chief Ludwig notes that the economic fallout from the virus is hitting fire departments hard, and there could be as many as 30,000 firefighter layoffs unless Congress steps up to support local governments soon. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.